Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Well, I want to talk more about the TV show, but let's talk about the new work that's coming out in June, The Cryptic Code of the Templars. Tell us okay. about this. Well, you know what? Um, you know, that, that runestone, you mentioned it, um, has been an enigma for 120 years now. Jeez. And I, I think I've finally gotten to the bottom of that well. And I know that some people are saying, oh, sure, there's got to be more. Well, um, you know, I became a Freemason about four years ago. And one of the things that happened to me, I was going through a degree in the York Rite, and all of a sudden, um, something happened in the degree that was directly connected to the runestone. And, uh, yeah, I, and I know that sounds crazy, but it's 100% true. And it helped me understand that a large part of the inscription is allegory, and parts of it are real historical truth. And that's exactly what our Masonic degrees are, a combination of those two things. The hard part is figuring out which is which. And when it comes to the runestone, um, I think I've, I've found that last piece. It's an amazing document that just keeps on giving. It sure does. Now explain what a rune is for us, Scott. Okay. A rune is a symbol that is, for the most part, made up of straight lines. And um, these were uh, first developed in Scandinavia, I don't know exactly where, but somewhere probably in Norway. And uh, we, we've seen them starting in about the 4th century, uh, carved um, in wood, but primarily carved in stone. And the reason um, uh, it really lends itself to carving in stone is because it's mostly straight lines. And this is the, uh, the alphabet that the Vikings used, and it was used all through Scandinavia right up until uh, the 1800s in some places in Scandinavia. Well, in this particular case, the Kensington runestone, discovered by a Minnesota farmer in 1898, he was clearing trees from his field, right? That's correct. And he, he uprooted this large stone carved with these mysterious runes. And it details a very interesting journey back to 1300s. That's right. The stone is dated 1362, and um, it's it's mostly carved in runes. You're correct. However, there are uh, three Latin letters, AVM. There are numbers, uh, several numbers on the rune stone, and they happen to be something called pentatic numbers, which are Arabic in origin, which begs the question, what, are, what is a Muslim numbering system doing on a supposed Scandinavian runestone? Good point. Good point. And, you know, if this is the case, they got here way before Christopher Columbus got here. Oh, you mean, I call him Chris, you know, that guy that didn't set foot on the continent, <laughs> that already had millions of people living here, that guy? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> the guy, yeah, the guy we celebrate every once in a while, right? Well, you know what? That's that's slowly changing, and you know nothing against uh, Columbus, but um, he was in many ways uh, a political pawn as well. And but I think that that is changing. I mean, we know that the Vikings were here um, around the year one thousand, and then you know the historical narrative wants us to believe that from one thousand until 1492, which is almost 500 years that nothing happened, nothing at all, um, I, I have a hard time with that one. I had a guest, God rest his soul, Glenn Kimball, 
who used to talk about Egyptian hieroglyphs found near the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Now, yeah. If, if that's true, what does that tell you? <laughs> well, it tells you what I already know deep in my heart, is that there have been cultures coming to North America and going to all continents um, for a long, long time. And, and, you know, did the Egyptians make it here? I don't see any reason why not. The copper culture goes back probably five, six, maybe even eight uh, thousand years ago, coming to uh, the UP of Michigan and Lake Superior and just picking copper up off the ground, which back in those days was more valuable than gold and silver. So they've been coming here for a long time. Remember when we were in school, they talked to us about a little boat called Contiki? I do, with uh, Tor Heyerdahl. Yep, exactly, and he uh, he got here crossing the oceans, I guess. Well, if he could do it, you know, in modern times, why couldn't they have done it in the past? And, you know, he made an, uh, an amazing boat, but back in those days, I'm sure they knew how to make those boats even better than he did, so... Um, he proved it, and, and I'm sure it happened many, many times. When I was introducing you, uh, what is a petrographic service? What is that? Okay, well, petrography is the science that we perform in our laboratory, and basically it's the microscopic examination of concrete and rock. And, and basically what I do, George, is I perform autopsies on concrete and rock. So whenever there's a problem of any kind, if it has low strength, it cracks, the top comes off, or fire damage, as was the case at uh, the Pentagon after 9-11, mm-hmm. it will take samples, send them to us, and, and we'll do our examinations. When you looked at the Pentagon concrete, what did that tell you? Well, that was uh, an, an amazing case for, for a lot of reasons. But uh, first and foremost, I got a call from a representative with the, uh, with the military, uh, our, our government, and, and they said, you've been assigned to the Pentagon, which was really bizarre because most of the time I'm out there trying to hustle work, right? And, right. And to get assigned to something that was so big and so important was uh, obviously a big deal for us. And and I know you remember, like everybody listening remembers, what an awful day that was oh and how God. frustrating and angry we were. And, you know, everybody wanted to do something. And so for us to have an opportunity to, to actually do something and help was an honor and a privilege. But basically what we did was we looked at all the uh, the heat damage caused by the jet fuel fire of the steel-reinforced concrete columns and beams and the original plan was to do a surgical type repair to tell them uh, if this column could stay this one could be repaired or it had to be torn out and it turned into the fire damage was so severe the temperatures were so hot that they decided you know based on our results they just tore it out along the construction joints and started over there was uh, some controversy during that time period of course uh, about the entire episode, but some yeah. say that it was not a plane that hit the Pentagon, but a missile. Correct. Did, did, did your analysis convince you one way or another what happened? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And and for years, um, it's been a while now since I've had calls, but I used to get calls from people that would uh, say they were members of the, they would often say members of the Patriot community that were talking about, you know, different 
theories about what what happened there, and I can tell you 100% that it was a 757 that hit that plane. Um, there were a lot of people who lost family members, people that lost mm-hmm. members of the crew. Um, I saw, you know, what happened there, and uh, there's no question that a plane hit the Pentagon. Now, what happened at uh, the Twin Towers that day? I can't tell you. I wasn't there. I thought the uh, what appeared to be a controlled demolition of Building 7 was very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Me so too. I can't say what happened there, but I definitely know what happened at the Pentagon. What a time. What a horrible time. And we're still mired in that. Well, it changed the world forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can remember my father was a, was an airline pilot for Northwest Airlines. And, and, and when I was a, a teenager, I can remember getting on airplanes flying to the west, out to Montana. And hunters would get on with loaded shotguns and put them in the overhead bins. I swear to God that's true. Can you imagine today? Oh, my God, you couldn't do it. <laughs> no way. <laughs> You no could not, so you the could. world has changed, and um, I'm not sure if it's for the better, but I think it's they, they were necessary changes. How did you go from being a basically a forensic geologist into the things you're covering now? Well, it started with the runestone, George. I mean, it was it was that artifact that really you know that did it kicked this off. And you know, when I started this work, I, I never heard of the runestone. I didn't know about the controversy. I knew nothing. Um, I thought it was an interesting story, but, you know, as you, you know, I, I get involved in, in some pretty crazy things. Um, and so I did this work, and I, I thought, um, well, you know, when it was over, I did a tombstone study. I compared the weathering with the runestone, and I concluded it was hundreds of years old, and it was genuine. And I thought to myself, well, they got one, good for them. I wrote my report, and I thought that'd be the end of it. Well, <laughs> Turned out it was just the beginning because I got calls from people who, um, you know, had had some pretty serious questions and sharp criticism. And I, I'm not afraid to answer questions. I mean, I, I thought to myself, if I made a mistake, I'll fix it. But that's not what it was about. They didn't like the answer. And uh, you know, at first I was confused, and then I got, then I got pissed, and that's what drove me to get to the bottom of this thing and. Here we are now, 18 years later. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.